0: Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parkin. All right, welcome to the silky smooth sounds of the Green and Red podcast. I'm your co-host and Tinder comrade Scott Parkin here in Berkeley, California. And as always, I'm joined by Paul Zanko in Ohio. And today, we are very excited to be joined by Shane Burley. Uh, Shane is up in Portland, Portland, Oregon. He's a filmmaker. He's author of a book called Fascism Today, What It Is and How to End It. Uh, you can find his work featured at Jacobin, In These Times, Salon, Truth Out. Uh, he just this week was published on the NBC News website with an article called Trump's Antifa tweet is right-wing catnip with potentially troubling consequences. And you can find Shane on Twitter at, at Shane underscore Burley one. Welcome to Green Red, Shane.
1: Hey, thanks for having me on.
0: Yep, um, and so just to kind of jump into it a little bit, you know, the, the news last weekend was that Trump and William Barr and a, and a host of other right-wing talking heads who never really say much Tried to blame a lot of what they called the violence of the riots, which we've been calling a rebellion, on radical leftists and Antifa. And so just to kind of like get into it a little bit for our audience, when we're talking about Antifa, exactly what are we talking about?
1: Well, I think there's a difference between what we would be talking about and what yes. you would be talking about. So uh, generally, the term Antifa, it means anti-fascist, but it means a little bit more than that. It means militant anti-fascist or a particular type of anti-fascist organizing conventionally, though in the last couple of years, as anti-fascist movements have grown, it's become just kind of the catch-all for all things anti-fascist. So if you're part of an anti-fascist movement, whether that's the kind of black bloc, more militant type, or if it's just with your church group, you might still call yourself Antifa. Yeah, so it's a, it's a moving target there. What Trump means is something a little bit different. So what Trump is trying to indicate by saying Antifa, he's he's essentially meaning militant protests with a possibly leftist flavor or anti-racist flavor. And he's using it as a broad brush and he's doing so because Antifa became a real popular kind of punching bag on the right when they started going after Trump related events because the GOP was basically harboring white nationalists at that point. So it's become really unpopular in the fringes of the right and the GOP. And therefore, if he wants to demonize a foreign protest, call it antifa then call them terrorists and it's a pretty straight line
0: right and then the other the other narrative that they've been really playing up is this outside agitator mm-hmm. narrative as well which is trying to imply that like the violence is or the violence or the trouble isn't really coming from people in the local communities but instead like people you know flying in from some magical place where all the outside agitators are from
1: Right. And I think we should be reminded is that when people are checking the arrest records, almost everybody in every city who was arrested for militant action were from that city. So there's no outsiders coming in from anything. Uh, the, the outside agitator is, is as old as old could be. It's what you say when you want to delegitimize an actual uprising. This is what's been used uh, basically in the early days of the labor movement, and it's even used now. Outside agitators are coming in and turning up good workers and turning them against their boss. You know, outside agitators are going into the South and stirring up these communities that are now demanding for things like civil rights and end to what they're calling Jim Crow. Or it's these outside agitators that are coming into northern cities and, and telling Black people that they're living in slums and they should fight the police. I mean, th- this is this idea that on the one hand, these communities could not do this for themselves. They wouldn't be able to orchestrate it, they would be able to coordinate it, they wouldn't be able to organize. This other part of it is that their anger is not legitimate and that it has to only come from people who are coming in for their own reasons, whether it's ideological or maybe hedonistic or nihilistic or it's some kind of bloodthirst. And so it's done as a way to really undermine the legitimacy of action like that. And the reality is like almost all uprisings, they come from the community, their expression of the anger of the community and they're messy and disorganized and organized at the same time. And it's all kind of emerging from people's actual lived experiences.
2: Absolutely. I think, I think that's also an important message for people on the left because not so much now, but in the first day or two, a lot of leftists were also kind of playing this outside agitator, which I mean, I saw it when I professor, I studied Haymarket in 1877 and LBJ said this about, you know, anti-war protesters, but people on the left, I think, have to understand that, too, because they're going on, you know, they're showing pictures of bricks and they're showing license plates from outside of the, the home states and, and things like that. And, you know, I think that's a message, you, you, know, like, you know, what would you tell these people? Because I think people on the left want to say, oh, we're not violent, we're not doing anything wrong. And, and again, I think that infantilizes these people who are actually on the streets who have every reason to rebel.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, th- I think the first thing is that people need to be reminded of facts and truth a little bit. You know, the left is not yeah. all immune to conspiracy thinking. In fact, conspiracy thinking will become so indulged in some leftist spaces that we're completely disconnected from reality. I think people need to actually think about the physical world and how that would play out materially. Are people coming in, orchestrating things, setting up bricks? Are they organizing? Where are they organizing? Do we have evidence of it? And I think people need to kind of thought, that that, that part needs to be kind of talked to. The other part is this, this notion that, that political violence, particularly the political violence that you yourself would not take part in, or maybe it's not what you would choose, maybe it's not what you like, um, can only be discussed as illegitimate or as not something you have in a correlative relationship to. But the reality is that the left, of course, is violent. In some cases, there are revolutionary leftist movements. There's movements of self-defense and things like that. And it would be a really, really bizarre kind of reversal of understanding of history to look at some uh, anti-racist uprising that has violent elements and things you may disagree with and say, "Oh no, 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 that that has no ideological connection to what I have." That's just simply not the case. Um, instead, I think people need to go in there and say, like, whether or not I approve of this, like, that's kind of irrelevant it is happening it's happening in those communities it's happening from a sincere legitimate uh, anger and when you look at the last records you look at the the, the reporting on it it's just the people largely from the communities sometimes there are leftist folks in there and there have been a few small instances and i hate to even give it error because it's so small of right-wing people coming in there and kind of disingenuously engaging stuff but by and large these people are actually coming from their neighborhoods and they're rising up for for those reasons
0: you know, actually kind of like on that thread about the white supremacist outside agitators, that's been a, a big threat as well in the last like 10 days, two weeks, like especially around Minneapolis is that, that there's like right wingers coming into the city to, you know, start fires or to like kind of like escalate things. And uh, I mean, where, where, what have you been following that and what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think people should watch out for those sorts of things. I mean, I think anyone, if, if there's people coming into social movements and trying to get people to engage in violence, that's never a good sign of things. And that should be seen as really suspect. Um, and so you know, I think like what we I think a lot of people have seen is uh, these things called the boogaloo boys, basically right wing kind of insurrectionary types, some of which are white nationalists, some of which are just more like a kind of deep right wingers who claim to be anti-racist and kind of a perverse way. Um, and coming in and trying to j- engage in the protest as a way of pushing a second civil war narrative. Um, and there is also kind of the occasional reversal of like some white nationalist types trying to instigate stuff. Again, though, we're talking about a very small minority of what's one of the largest political uprisings in the last 50 years.
0: The other pieces, I saw a story kind of pop up the other day that even though that Trump and Barr have been saying that like radical leftists and Antifa were kind of behind some of this, is that then the FBI actually came out with a story revealing that uh, Antifa didn't actually really have much of a role, as far as they could find.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I I did a couple of stories about this um, right after the fact. The reality is that Antifa is an anti-fascist movement. Its goal is to generally uh, create defensive measures against white nationalists and, and what I call insurrectionary fascists. So people that are kind of they're not in the state necessarily. They're like outside the state, even if they have some connections, with police or something like that. Um, and that's a fundamentally different thing. They may have commonalities, they may interlink in some ways, and anti-fascist people and organizers may want to come out and support those protests. They may even join organizations that are active in organizing those protests. But to call them one and the same is just factually incorrect. And like one uh, organizer interview said is that as much as those anti-fascists are participating, they have no privileged role in those movements and are just rank and file like anybody else. And so I think that's actually how we should think about it. But instead, we're talking about really kind of blunting political descriptions here, calling anything that, that could have an aggressive flavor or a militant flavor or engage in property destruction as Antifa, as de facto, so all things then become Antifa.
2: You know, uh, Trump has been playing this up for a while, and the, the right has been playing this up for a while, but my sense, just looking at media, is it's not working. I think, uh, I think they thought this was going to be their kind of, you know, ace in the hole and it's not working. Uh, I, I think that, the, you know, this kind of the narrative's already gone and people, you know, aren't buying it, that they understand that this is local. So, um, I mean, is that kind of surprising that, that, you know, to you, I mean, you kind of pretty soon you might be mainstream if this keeps going, you know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, I think the thing about it is that people have kind of seen through the Antifa talk. Uh, for a couple of years now. It's also been made very clear that he cannot label Antifa a terrorist organization in any legal framework. It's just, there really doesn't exist. No, that's that's foreign, that's for foreign. You have to be foreign organization. Uh, And we're talking about an organization that kills nobody as opposed to the people that they're combating that killing hundreds of people. So I I think like uh, people are pretty aware that there's lots of coverage on that. some people it just reinforces the existing kind of uh, blame antifa mentality the antifa is yeah. very popular and unpopular in certain parts of the right so i think it just reinforces that it does have the ability though to give cover to certain things and so for example um police departments hearing this rhetoric may feel justified in increasing uh you know um aggressive responses to protesters hey we're talking about terrorists right why not uh you know blast them with more tear gas i mean that's how you deal with terrorists or we could talk about um uh, maybe enhanced prosecutions There could be more charges, there could be larger sentences, there could be uh, wiretapping, grand jury investigations, FBI can set priorities to the Joint Terrorism Task Force. There's a number of things that they can actually do that shifts the existing sort of um, latitudes that uh, law enforcement and those who who, uh, DA's office have uh, to kind of express crimes. And at the same time, you know, by naming that, you could, you're talking about opening people up to the losses. you're trying to, uh, to, you're basically setting up a validation of other people's kind of reactionary behavior. So there's another thing that could f- kind of fall suit, even if suddenly it's not going to mean like, you know, donating to an Antifa Patreon is going to, you know, get you called <laughs> the, the State Department or something. Yeah.
0: It also strikes me that it's a little bit of Trump uh, dog whistling to his base, that it, he's looking for like some sort of response to back him up while this like somewhat popular uprising is going on and it, it seems like antifa is a little bit of a dog whistle that he's attempting to do that it seems like other politicians have done that well like tom cotton
1: oh yeah absolutely yeah you know antifa actually is is sort of a brilliant target for him because it screams a number of things to a conservative base it screams young people which you know Every old conservative hates as much as possible. Um, it screams um, basically non-normative white folks. It screams community color, queer folks, people who dress funny, leftists, all the people that are kind of dangerous in this, in this space. It's kind of can all be kind of wrapped up into Antifa. And I mean, I think um, also signaling law and order in was essentially an uprising against police violence against communities of color has its own racial dog whistle. It's pretty clear what they're saying there, that they're not going to tolerate those things. It's sort of a Nixon playbook strategy. Um, I don't know that in this case it's actually going to work, but it is absolutely a sign of what this campaign season is going to be for Trump. It's about him doubling down on his base and signaling as hard as he possibly can.
2: Yeah. I think one thing it's done is uh, yeah. actually change the narrative with, with kind of liberals, because I know, you know a couple of years ago, a lot of people, people I admire, like Noam Chomsky, you know we're, we're really dogging on on this anti-fascist ideology and saying it was a gift to the right and, and things like that and i think most people realize now that that was that was a uh, hysterical kind of you know uh, that, that that was never the case uh one thing that's really um i think needs to be kind of really talked about and, and brought out and, and you can speak to this is that what we're seeing now is this mass rebellion i there are probably millions of people who have participated in some form or another you know uh, when the right wing organized at charlottesville or in portland what did they get a couple hundred people and this is after weeks and weeks and weeks of organizing
1: well so Charlottesville so it was more like a thousand it was, was it okay a, it was a little okay. bit more like a, a a giant flashpoint that's why it was
0: so significant
2: yeah but but my point is like these movements for resistance now have you know spontaneously emerged mm, yeah they have like these massive numbers of people all over small towns big towns uh and you know the, the right doesn't do that and so um, I think you know. Are you seeing that that this is kind of something bigger, uh, something bigger than you even might you know might have expected?
1: Oh, absolutely! No, this is massive. Um, I don't yeah. think anyone would play it If this was done by outside agitators, so you know, we might call <laughs> that. But, um, astroturfing if we're actually yeah. i think if it was done by that it would have been terrible it would have been small <laughs> sure. ineffective, you know um you no know, people people see this situation and it speaks to their experience and it triggered the ability to come out in a mass way and when people see that they say yeah i can do that too and it happens kind of universally and there's a really big common shared experience here about the police as an occupying force in communities and so people are understanding that really easily yeah the the right wing doesn't have a correlative to this there's not a kind of a right wing ground slow movement that matches this sort of energy and it's because their interests are actually much smaller. Okay. They don't, I mean, a lot of what happens for rank and file conservatives is very ideologically driven versus what we kind of see on like what we call the quote unquote left of rank and file folks is based on experience. We're talking about the experience of police violence, the experiences of poverty, that kind of thing. And so you're seeing a kind of groundswell and it happens totally outside of the like kind of auspices of the organized political left. It couldn't happen just within that. And so I think that we're talking about two completely different worlds here. And it's why I think people, you know people who do think of themselves on the left and our organizers are entering into that movement have to take a back seat and have to listen to people more than they can come in with their own vision of how this
0: should go yeah it is it it is very much like where the the bureaucratic left or the organized left the nonprofits and the unions and the political parties this is where they need to they're a hindrance right if they start talking about what's the plan what's the strategy you know what's what's our what's our comms what's our comms plan communications plan you know that's where this will be lost. I saw them try to do that with Occupy and they tried to do that with Standing Rock. And it's a losing battle because I actually, when I think about those reopen the economy protests at a certain level over the last couple of months, it very much reminded me of like kind of like liberal NGO sort of campaigns. It, it, there were a couple of places where they were bigger than that. But like this is like the grassroots like uprising where people are just spontaneously going out every night and challenging the authorities over and over. And and even though the cops are doubling down, they keep going back. And it's very different than a a non-profit-led campaign or or mobilization.
1: And what would the organized professional left's intervention be? To moderate what has already become a really militant, universalized demand of abolishing the police? I mean, there is no space for moderating away from where people have already gotten to at their own. In any of these protest spaces, it's very common to see that we're not talking about police reform. We're not even really talking about police brutality anymore. We're just talking about the police and all the things that they make up. That's the common chant here. We're talking about kicking the police out of everywhere, abolishing police unions, everything. So... I mean, either the left gets on board with what the demand of the people is, or they have absolutely no role other than to conservatize the movement, you know, and the, all they do it would do is hold it back. And so I actually think, and, you know, and I think a lot of organizations are actually doing quite good. They're just showing up, being like, okay, well, we're just going to support this, and that's the that is the perfect thing to do, or offer resources, or listen to what people are wanting, and that kind of thing.
0: Fundraising emails out to people's bail funds and things like that.
1: Absolutely, and a lot, and a lot of organizations have done exactly that. I don't want to take away from that at all. A lot of people see that. Um, I think on a long enough time frame, though, yeah, organized left people will look around and go, okay, let's mobilize this for X, Y, and Z. And, and I think what would be awful is if for so, if people thought that this was gonna get like Joe Biden elected or something, right, right, right. or if people, this is gonna make really good, you know, Planned Parenthood fundraising letters. I just think it's not gonna be the case.
2: Well, you know, about 20 minutes ago, the New York Times webpage headline um, actually was about defunding the police, which was stunning, you know, like, you know, in 2020, they've actually finally see that now as a legitimate issue. For discussion which is you know in 10 days that's happened because of people in the streets all this stuff's happened because of people in the streets sure. and and so uh, you want to talk a little bit more though because because you know trump has tried to kind of create this narrative of violence but in fact we've had a couple people on like scott crow and jasmine Arujo from from new orleans who are doing mutual aid and mm-hmm. i think during the the COVID crisis like a lot of you folks in your little cells with all your membership lists and all that other stuff uh, have been, uh, joking about that, obviously have been doing stuff like that. And you want to talk a little bit about what you've been doing prior to, to this recent uprising, because you guys have been out there every time something's going on from Katrina onward.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think people have been organizing mutual aid networks to support people during the crisis. Um, and built on a lot of models, so you mentioned Scott Crow, a lot of what they did the Common Ground Collective in, in New Orleans in the the, uh, the wake of Hurricane Katrina, um, helping get people medical care, get them food, get houses fixed up, a whole lot of projects. A lot of those end up being an inspiration for what can people do when we're in the middle of this pandemic which is it's different because we can't leave our houses and we can't go take things to people. Um, and a lot of people created these um, basically uh, systems to get people what they need, particularly people who are immune compromised, couldn't go out of their houses to coordinate people get them to know their neighbors and those sorts of things. And that's been what sustained lots of people over the last couple months. And it's frankly something that's going to have to continue as the you know economic deprivation really sets in. And when mutual aid starts looking like supporting people to stop them from getting evicted or people who are trying to fight back in their workplaces from losing their jobs or getting pay cuts, things like that. So that all that kind of work uh, continues. And really in a lot of ways, it's all the same work when people are out in the streets, people are at home supporting people Uh, Through a crisis like this, it's about looking at the community as one holistic thing, figuring out how those connections can be made, and how can you work together to solve the common problem. It's our community. It's going to be our vision for how we do this, and we want to do it outside of the kind of systems that got us in the problem in the first place.
2: Yeah, I think that whole idea of decentralization is also really important because you know uh, I have seen some people try to kind of turn this into you know a kind of a this is good for the Democratic Party kind of narrative, and uh, you know obviously it's it's much way beyond that it's much bigger than that much different than that um but where where do i mean so you know the last six months or so have been surreal with covid and the the reopening protests where you had these armed right-wingers marching into state capitals you know Mm -hmm. which you guys you know no one on our side has ever done anything like that no one on the left or however you want to define has ever done anything like that that you know in recent history um what do you do now we have these spontaneous surprises. We have people in their communities organizing within their communities. But um, you know, we all have a role to play. Do we continue to work in our communities? Do we try to create some kind of something broader and bigger?
1: I mean, I, th- I, th- I think it's it's about coordinating what exists and making the local go international in a way. Um, yeah. We need to figure out better coordination between communities. But those projects that are there should continue because the needs that started those projects are going to continue. Um, in earnest, you know? So right now people are focusing on getting out when they can and going to these actions. That's great, really important. And uh, making sure that they're getting funds going and that they're getting structures in place and that they're really contributing to that. Um, And in a few weeks, we're also gonna need to find ways to connect that struggle to renter struggles and that struggle to workplace struggles and all those sorts of things. This is a tough year. This is a really tough year and it's gonna be a couple of years and we're gonna have to continue all those connections we made now for the way the struggle shifts We're talking about economic issues. We're talking about the healthcare system. We're talking about all these things as they shift back and forth. They're all part of the same systems of inequality. So we're going to have to create one kind of unified structure of connection. Um, And we do that, like you said, in a decentralized way. Let people be local. Let them focus on what they're going to focus for. They can lend support across projects and then kind of go back to their home project. Uh, I have the personal kind of affinity for you know pick a couple of movements that you have a good attitude for, a good style of organizing for. Focus your most of your time on that, and then lend support and solidarity to. Other people's struggles when they need it.
0: Yeah absolutely.
1: There are a lot
2: of you know uh, movements that have been doing good stuff like the environmental work that, that Scott does for a long time now and a lot of that seems right now to kind of be in in, in a little bit of a on hold because everybody's dealing with this contemporary crisis. Uh, and I think one of the things that I've seen as, as a you know a professor as a historian is that a lot of times when something happens people stop doing what they were doing before and they move into this new area and you know like people in civil rights started opposing the war in Vietnam. Scott and I were doing globalization work. We started to oppose the war in Iraq and and we never kind of went back to what we were doing before. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that that it's important to keep doing, you know, there are people doing good work on the environment, on anti-militarism and, you know, a a ton of different issues. Like, what, what do you do? Do you just kind of focus on this major crisis that we're dealing with right now And or or do we have to kind of keep keep going
1: with the stuff that we already have going, you know, underway? Well, if you're constantly switching, you can never let a project build a capacity to affect anything, you know. Uh, And this happened with when Trump was elected, where everyone felt like, okay, well, this changes everything. We have to drop everything that we've been doing for years and do this. And I think there's actually a different way of doing this. I think what you can do is take a general framework of a project. So let's say you're doing housing, organizing in the city that you live in. Well, you can shift it to start focusing on the things that are particularly relevant in the crisis. So if it's COVID, your housing organization that's built up a big base working with tenants and skills and all those sorts of things, can focus a little bit on COVID-related situations. Or maybe it's about police violence. Maybe you can uh, support on tenants who are being hounded by the police in their apartments and with the support of their landlord and they have to be able to push back on it. You have the skills to do that and now you're actually a part of both those things simultaneously. And I think thinking about it that way is a good way to do it. And also like, you know, you can put something on the shelf for a couple of months and come back. I think that's also totally fine. But, you know, there's no point in time when, for example, the ecological struggle is somehow not going to be necessary, right? right. Like it's absolutely going to be, uh, it, it will be more and more necessary as the months and years and decades go on.
0: I totally agree with that. I actually, I honestly, I've probably, more in the last 15 years I've done more ecological climate, climate justice related things. But every time that we're kind of, have moved into this space where disruption is happening at scale, like Occupy or, I, you know, there's a lot around Standing Rock that, that was that. I feel like there's a lot of people with energy. I feel like there's actually a lot of skills that can be applied to like these different things. Like I know I, my, in my day job, I do a lot of corporate campaigning and I support a lot of people who have been fighting pipelines. And I'm finding that like a lot of people with those skills are like, hey, let's look at the companies that are providing tear gas to the police. Let's look at the investors in those companies and what we can do to kind of like disrupt their lives. Cause that's, what's important right now. And I feel like there's cross movement, cross issue intersectionality going on. But I also feel like there's a lot of this to me, a lot of the same people who are like been fighting, who fought the Keystone pipeline, fought the Dakota access pipeline, work on police violence or taking down Confederate statues in their communities are all now like able to like apply their skills, training, whatever. To this current crisis that's, that's happening in front of us.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we, we should be able to confederate with each other as much as we possibly can. And those connections should be natural. You know, um, there's a lot of shared political commitments there. Um, and we should have the ability to kind of do work here and lend it over there. And I think, and, and, and as we're like, this is actually something I think that COVID shot us a lot is that actually we can use technology and things like this to keep this work going and connect and train people and do that on a very consistent basis.
0: Uh, the other the other kind of common denominator I find is that it's it's often people whose politics are probably more anti-authoritarian, anarchist, which are like really kind of recognize the importance of one, just like taking advantage of the disruption at, at scale, and then two, like working on an intersection of these issues. It takes some convincing to convince the typical liberal that you don't need to be single issue focused, and or it's not somehow something we're going to pivot to a, a voting drive in November or October.
1: Yeah. I, mean, I think the existence of party politics and conventional politics and NGOs and stuff has really limited people's understanding of like how politics works or what it can do. And yeah. that should be something that intersecting these movements or participating and spontaneous um, uprising and supporting those movements can give that kind of education backwards.
0: I will say that I have been saying this for the last couple of weeks and I thought, I thought this during Standing Rock and I thought this during Ferguson. And I thought this during Occupy and back during the long time ago during the Iraq war. Uh, is that like there's more radical radicalizing of people going on right now as a result of the behavior of the police than any like training or Zoom webinar that we could ever do, and it's it's a it's an important thing to like kind of recognize and embrace.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, ninety five percent of the protests, despite the fact that there are have been militant protests with riots and looting and things like that, ninety five percent of them have been just really large mass uprisings of people that the police have just crushed anyway. Um, So you can follow all the rules, do exactly what they ask and the police will go ahead and put their knees on your neck and shoot at tear gas or shoot you at paint canisters, attack people, open fire, Um, just the same. And so they've been totally kind of unleashed who they are and made it very clear in the crisis moment. And so I think that's actually helped reinforce the movement that this is not about just changing the police, it's about fundamentally getting rid of the institution.
0: And they keep doubling down. Every time you think, okay, that's the worst they're going to do, now they're going to take a step back, then they do something worse.
1: Yeah, it, it's bizarre. I really want to know what the inside of the room at the police unions look like right now, that they, they just must think we're all out of our minds or something, um, as they just continue to ramp up aggression in every city.
2: I mean, it's kind of a, a, a crisis moment, um, obviously. And I think it has radicalized a lot of people, however you want to, you know, define that term. But there's still a lot of folks who, you know, kind of are, you know, kind of scared you know they, they see these scenes and it's, and it's frightening you know i think uh anytime you see police out there you know they're, they're they're kind of vicious um how have you kind of you know you're talking to people i'm sure more people are interested more people are talking to you asking you what to do um you know how do you kind of uh what do you say to them you know we, we ask that to everybody who's on you know because we've got a lot of activists on so what do you say to them who you know who are saying you know i have the, you know i'm afraid the police are out there it's getting ugly that kind of thing
0: I, I
1: think that the, f- the first thing is that the, the vast majority of these things are actually safe to be at. And I, I think people who don't have an experience with that are actually confused by that because they, what they see of protests are essentially heavily aggressive or attacked by the police. So that's very much the case. I think that we reinforce it. These are actually, in a lot of ways, family spaces, but they're ones that people historically are commonly in. People protest spaces are a very common part of civic engagement. People should feel comfortable there and remind of that. The other thing, though, is the flip side of that. Yes, it is scary and it is dangerous. This world's becoming scary and dangerous because of what's happening here. And there's only one way to intervene on that. I would go a step further with a lot of people. I've seen a lot of these things like, this is how you can support them. You can donate here, you can do this. I actually think maybe it's better to not give people the easy out. I'd say, you know, your solidarity is worth more than your $20. I think that if you can find a way to support in an organizing capacity to come out to one of these actions, is really helpful. Even if it's just once or twice or just for a little bit, that's great. Um, I think it's also great to find a way, where are you at and how could you productively organize? So, for example, are you a member of a labor union? Does your labor union at the international level uh, support uh, have a police unit? Well, then you're in a great spot to organize with your other coworkers and maybe the organizers of these unions to, to, to confront those issues. Um, you know, are, are you uh, a teacher somewhere? Can you start confronting police in schools? There's all kinds of great things that you can actually do where you are at right there. And so um, I think but in really finding a way in to engage in an organizing capacity, not just in a kind of small support capacity is transformative, not just for the movement, but for you too. It brings those things back home with you and makes it an intimate part of your life. And that has a transformative nature to it that I think is really important for people.
0: Yep. just a a quick station identification, not that we're a station podcast identification Uh, folks. You're listening to author uh, Shane Burley, author of fascism today, what it is and how to end it or how to end it. This is the Green and Red Podcast with Scott Parkin and Bob Zenko. Please follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, and then if you would love to be a donor, we would love to have you. Uh, you can go to patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast and become a patron. Or you can make a um, one-time donation at our new website, uh, which still needs to be populated, but we do have a donation page, greenandredpodcast.org. Yeah,
2: we're still waiting on our uh, check from Soros. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we made all these jokes about you know, Antifa being an organization and, and all this kind of stuff, and we realize this decentralized group is really an idea. But uh, especially younger people, I think, are, are really gravitating toward this more and more and more and more. And, I mean, do they like, kind of seek out collectives? Like there we, A few weeks ago, we interviewed this great group in New Orleans, uh, Southern Solidarity, and, you know, they've had more and more people kind of come there every day. You know, they're, they're doing all kinds of mutual aid. And I mean, are you kind of seeing that, you know, when you talk to people all, all in other cities that, you know, people are just kind of coming out and looking for, for folks who are doing mutual
1: aid, who are operating uh, in these community organizations and things like that? Yeah, I mean, I think since Trump was elected people, there was an extra element of motivation. So if you're talking to anti-fascist groups, and I interview them all the time for articles and essays and things like that. And they're talking about, you know, getting way more people interested than they had in years before. Um, basically all of the organizations, every organization doing movement work is seeing a certain kind of boon of young people who want to do something. And I think we're going to see another influx of people to organizations of people who are coming in through this particular moment, but they maybe want to have some long-term investment and do those work. So yeah, I think there's absolutely this kind of cycle of, of that increasing and I don't see any reason why that would, Uh, decline anytime soon. We're seeing kind of an ongoing period of crisis, particularly economic crisis in the next couple of years. So I I think there's going to be a constant kind of surge to do something about it and to figure out some way of intervening on it. I mean, even if, for example, Joe Biden is elected, it's not exactly going to send the message to young people that they have an ally in the state anymore. So there's a real common common sense that they're going to have to take this up themselves if they want to change the community. Yeah,
2: we... Talked about that this morning, I think, Scott and I, you know, in 19, 19, 2009, Obama's election, I think, kind of made a lot of people exhale and, you know, take a seat. And I, I yeah, that's not going to happen um, in January. Uh, so I think that, you know, that, that's really, really important. Now, how do you interact with groups that, you know, aren't hostile to you, like, like Trump, but aren't necessarily allies either, like kind of liberal NGOs, people like that? Um, when you interact with them, I mean, do they not want you around or do they try to make
1: you behave a certain way? Uh, you know, how do you, how do you work together cooperatively? I mean, it depends on what I'm there for. Like if I'm there yeah. as a reporter, everyone wants to talk to me, you know, yeah. people yeah. just play like that. Um, podcast guest. You know, I think it's orchestra. To be perfectly honest, I think a lot of those institutional left things actually have moved to the left. Um, yeah. So I think there's a, actually, and, and also remember that those organizations are made up of people who, went to college and wanted those jobs. And so there is a certain kind of shift that I think's happened in a lot of those places. Not all of them by any means, but I think there's a certain friendliness to like the kind of radicals in the midst that have like a bigger vision of those sorts of things. Um, that being said, when it comes to electoral politics, <laughs> that big dreaming kind um, yeah. of ends because there's so much to have at stake. And I actually, you know, some things that I think people miss this That it's not like conservatism of the people there, it's the actual legal structures of those organizations that, like, um, you know, a liberal, even just a centrist liberal politician could, uh, you know, undo restrictions on organizations, could, you know, decide whether or not they're gonna continue living or not, these organizations. There's all kinds of things that play there that play into that. And so I think, you know, when you're looking at an organization, they could be the best organization in the world or, or all the greatest intentions, but. The bottom line is that that their own survival is probably going to come first um, in political decisions for a lot of reasons and also they're going to make a different calculation than people who maybe aren't as a part of a like a business side organization with the different calculations there and so i think people and this is how true of coalitions in general is: you look at the like what people have in common and also acknowledge that you have things that aren't in common and try and limit the scope of what you're agreeing on, therefore, people kind of live up to their end of this. And this is true. I mean, this is definitely true in environmental work, but I think it's going to be especially true now, you know, is that like when organizations start supporting these protest movements, the expectation needs to be put that, okay, just so you know, this isn't like, you know, your new voting list or something. This is, you're going to come in support, you can get some things out of it, but there's going to have to be boundaries there.
0: Yeah, uh, definitely people run to the left of the institutions, even the like liberal institutions, NGO institutions, unions like the most effective labor strikes that we've seen in the last two years have been wildcats in defiance of the union bosses, if anything. Uh, Here in California, the University of California, Santa Cruz, grad students went on strike. The union, which is over them, which is the United Auto Workers, I believe, like they tried to to stop them from going on strike. And I mean, it, it was in complete defiance. And I feel like that's something people don't realize that they think that if they can get like a, a liberal politician in power or in the White House, then things are gonna be better. But like some of the like most egregious civil rights stuff I saw against like people in the environmental community were was done by Obama's FBI, which is the FBI, the same FBI. And they're kind of heroes now because to the to the liberal hashtag resistance because they've been resisting Trump or pushing back on Trump or at least Comey and Mueller and people like that have. But like this sort of notion that these institutions are going to shift in any meaningful way without a lot of pressure or people power put on them is like a little bit of a, it's, it's just a myth. It's a liberal myth to me.
1: Yeah. You know, it, it reminds me of this idea of the progressive boss, you know, see <laughs> this a lot recently of the kind of liberal Whole Foods type boss that, uh, will talk to you about uh, progressive values while they you know, crush your union and that kind of thing. The bottom line is that power matters and class dynamics matter and the material conditions matter. And so uh, there is really no kind of liberal FBI <laughs> director because what the FBI is meant to do is reinforce property laws and and repress social movements and things like that. That's its fundamental core purpose. And so you can you know pinkwash that as much as you want, it's not gonna change it. And so I think it's important to really think about like what is it we're, we're talking about changing here and what's the fundamental core of what causes that to be a problem. And if you can constantly kind of go back to those roots, that's what makes it a radical vision. Because we're talking about completely ripping out those roots and planting something new. And so we have to constantly kind of reinforce, particularly in election season, and particularly when people want to vote against Trump and, you know, Godspeed to them if if that's important, but it's not, it has nothing really to do with the long-term social movement and it's not going to change the material conditions so profoundly that it's going to, you know, unseat the inequalities of capitalism in the state.
0: Yeah. And I, I think to kind of bring it back a little bit to talking about anarchists and Antifa, which are being targeted by the state right now, but the, I think the important ro- one of the important roles that's been coming out of that, like we've been saying, is this sort of like notion of de- decentralized organizing and building communities where you're at and working on issues, whether it's this sort of like creative, like food banks, or food not bombs, or delivering food to elderly people who don't want to leave their houses because of COVID, or people who are in like engaged in some sort of resistance. I feel it's actually an important role that like anarchy and anarchists getting more popularized when they're not being like just like attacked is, is a, it's a important. It, it's something that I feel like we've seen more of in the last 10 or 20 years than we had before.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think as you see social safety net things erode, but you also just see kind of uh, community institutions erode. I mean, how many people are, uh, you know, members of a church or even members of the Elks Lodge? Like, there's just very few places that you have a non-commercial relationship with your neighbors um, where you can just go there and get support and that kinds of things. And those are sort of the the fundamental core of the anarchist politics about building those community institutions outside of some kind of uh, course of state apparatus or a corporate institution so and those are being provided as an alternative
0: and so and you've done you've written a book on the right and you've you know research and looked into that quite a bit do you see that right-wing organizations the ones you're like to the far right do you see them also engaging in some level of community building
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, It's why they're successful. I think the best example is what happens in the rural parts of the country. So we have, you know, I I live in uh, the kind of, you know, deep blue corridor of Oregon, but outside of here, you know, south and east, it's deeply red areas to conservative areas, rural areas of the state and especially into the desert. and what we're talking about is their conservative politicians has basically just destroyed, um, you know, public services. You can't get an ambulance out to your house. There's no libraries, nothing like that. Um, there's nothing. There's particularly to support people if there is like any kind of uh, a disaster. So COVID is an absolute nightmare. We're talking about places without high speed internet, um, where like even most of the post offices are getting get, are gone, and there's no real base for community centers. But you know what the right wing does? You know what the three percenter militias do? And what the Oath Keepers do? They'll come take you to the to the hospital if there's no ambulance, they'll come in and you know, deliver your groceries for you. They'll help you, they'll invite you to a meeting and help you get your kids what they need. So they come in and actually solve a bit of that problem. And so what does the left do? Um, generally, they stay in urban areas, they act kind of elitist in comparison, they're not speaking the same language, they don't go out there, they write people off, they make fun of them. Um, that's not community building. Um, and so they're out here where I am, there's an organization called the Rural Organizing Project. And, and there are, I think they have like 50 chapters around the state. And basically they go there and they do the same things the right wing would do as a part of the strategy of undermining them. So there was an area where, um, Uh, these militia folks were recruiting. And so what they did was they went down there, helped get a few computers, put them at the general score where kids could come and do their homework, helped them make a newsletter so the neighbors could get to know each other. And after a couple of years of doing this, they didn't want the militia anymore because they had started to build a little bit of that base themselves. And so we actually need, I mean, the the fundamental core of why they're able to grow is that they, they build community
0: where it's absent. And so we have
1: to actually be willing to do that work ourselves.
0: Yeah, and, and and you know, not to give them credit because I don't like giving them a credit, but that's such smart organizing,
1: and it's well, that's
2: that's what the, what the world directory
0: do, too. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
2: well, you know, one thing I've noticed, like you know, and Scott and I've talked about this for years, you know, the the right has you know like gun clubs and evangelical churches and things like that, and we don't have yeah. those kinds of institutions, and you know, I think you know, but do we build them? Do we? I mean, how do, how do we do that? I mean, you just gave a great example, right? We're going yeah. to the a couple computers in that kind of thing but um what else you know can can people do i mean one of the things we try to do is kind of get people to become more active and give them ways to become more active
1: yeah i mean i think i think what does it take to build community i think one of the things that i think people who are on the left do really poorly is Understand that this can't all just be heavily politicized spaces. It has to be about getting to know people and having investment in people, uh, and building up that kind of thing. You know, I'm thinking about where I, I'm living, and I, it doesn't bother me much because I'm about to move. But I don't know my neighbors. I don't have like a foundation there. And when a crisis happens, I don't really actually have people to turn on outside of you know, like right in that narrow corridor. And we haven't done a great job historically of doing that kind of work. Um, and as those community institutions erode, it's going to be the people that are able to build a strong community basis not just on shared politics not just on you know ideological things but on just living together and being together those are going to be the things that actually trans transpose um the conditions and actually get people motivated. And I think it's just like we're seeing now. I mean, this uprising that's happening, it definitely has a political character and it speaks a political language, but it's coming without that political agitation. It's coming out of real networks. It's coming out of real communities. And if we don't build real communities where people have an actual investment in one another, where people uh, have have strong feelings and and strong kind of roots, then it's really not gonna matter. And people aren't gonna stick with it in the long term.
0: And as we're heading, we're definitely heading into an economic crisis and we're, you know, the climate crisis is also looming happening in places, whether it's wildfires or superstorms or whatever. And it's going to gonna be just all the more important.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Now, this is not going to end. I mean, we're, we're going to need this in the coming decades even more so. And we're going to have to solidify how we take care of one another and how we answer these calls for nationalism and division, which are going to get increase in times of crisis, how do we answer them with solidarity and mutual aid as a real tangible option?
2: Yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah.
2: Well, you know, I, I spent half a year in Houston, which, you know, he's it hit a, a, a tropical storm or a hurricane, you know, every couple of years. And, um, you know, a couple of years ago when Harvey hit, much of the mutual aid was being done by kind of right-wing churches and, you know, kind of these, the, these NRA types. And I think that, you know, one thing to do is, you know, understand that that's probably going to happen. You're going to have some kind of natural disaster that's almost inevitable if you live on the Gulf. So uh, to prepare now for that, to start kind of saying, okay, what are we going to do when this happens? Because I, I don't, you know, I mean, I'm not as active as I used to be, but, you know, I've never seen kind of a lot of that kind of long distance thinking, you know, what do we do if this happens? What do we do if that happens? It tends to be, you know, let's have a protest, let's have a teach-in, let's have a rally and, you know, let's register the people to vote or, or whatever. So um,
1: I think people are thinking about it together now. ahead of time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a shared sense of trauma right now. And the need for things like care and, and conversation about what care looks like. And I think people who are coming to political consciousness today have that kind of those questions in mind, and they've seen the need for that kind of support. So I think it's actually in the coming kind of generation of organizers, it's going to have a big focus on those mutual aid projects.
0: I think we're kind of heading towards the end of our time. I don't know, Bob, if you have any final questions. Uh, just you know,
2: the the typical like you know, if if somebody is is interested, they're they're appalled by what's happening. They they understand it's bigger than than Donald Trump, uh, and they they want to be part of a decentralized movement. Maybe they'll call themselves an anarchist. Maybe they won't. Uh, what you know, how would you kind of uh, advise them going forward? What would you tell them to look for? Who would they uh, read? Who where would they go? Who, who could they connect with? That kind of
1: thing. I mean, I think, I think actually being a part of formal organizations is a really good experience to get to know ideas and meet people and figure out what you want to be doing. I think think about what kind of comes to your mind first. Are you really thinking about your life at work? Are you thinking about, uh, you know, the crisis of renting in cities? Are you, are you thinking about fighting, you know, um, police violence? And th- there's organizations locally that are doing that work. I think right now, the best thing is to be a part of something, to find a way of working that into your life and, and finding yourself really engaged. You know, as you talk, I,
2: I keep thinking of uh, SDS when it started, before it became like kind of this major anti-war movement. Uh, had a uh, th- Their goal was participatory democracy, which is pretty much what you're describing. Uh, creating tenants unions, creating welfare rights organizations, creating uh, police oversight boards. Uh, you know, if they didn't pick up the garbage, the people in the community would stick all the garbage on a truck and dump it at City Hall, that kind of thing. And, you know, this is kind of what I hear you saying, you know. So it's, it's out
0: there. It's out there. And, you know. Not they that. were more anarchist than Stalinist, I'll say that about SDS. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely,
2: yeah, absolutely. Um,
0: this is fantastic.
2: Thank you so much uh, for yeah. having on and, uh, you know, for, for talking with us, obviously. And going forward, I know that uh, this is just getting started. I mean, uh, you know, uh, this isn't going to end anytime soon. Uh, so let's hope
0: that, uh, you know, let's, let's hope it goes well. Yeah. Much appreciated you spending your evening with us, Shane. Absolutely. Absolutely. thank you so much. On. Yep. Folks, you've been listening to Shane Burley, author, filmmaker, author of uh, Fascism Today, What It Is and How to End It. You've been listening to Bob and Scott on the Green and Red Podcast. You can, fo- you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can become a donor at patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast or on our website, Red podcast.org. It's been uh, good talking to you. Have a good night. Thanks, Shane.
1: Thanks much.